This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm in the studio today, and I'm going to be asking the question, how should Christians think about yoga? It's an issue that certainly comes more and more to mind as yoga is becoming a more central part of American culture. And not only out there in the culture at large, but in the church, where there seem to be many Christians who are attracted to the spiritual practices and to the exercises of yoga. Yoga's big business. Estimates are that yoga is now a $6 billion annual business in America, and it's big in terms of numbers of adherents. Yoga Journal suggests that nearly 16 million Americans are practicing some form of yoga. Many of them are in your community. Some of them are in your church. Some may be listening now. Stephanie Simon's articles on technology, media, and culture have appeared in a number of periodicals, ranging from the Wall Street Journal to Vogue and The Village Voice. She has also been featured in two documentary films, and in 1995, she co-founded Feed, an award-winning independent web magazine. She is the author of the book, The Subtle Body, The Story of Yoga in America. The book was published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux earlier this year, and it is one of the most interesting books I've read in a very long time. Stephanie Simon, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thanks for having me. This book was so compelling as I read it, because what I really love to find, just in terms of even avocational fun reading, is, is a book that tells me a story that, uh, that has never really been told this way before. No, no one has actually traced the history of yoga in America, and it's quite a story. How did you get to it? Well, um, about 15 years ago, I began practicing yoga myself. And as you mentioned, I was running a web magazine, one of the first. And so I was a kind of student of culture. And um, at a certain point, not long after I began practicing yoga, I realized I wanted to know how yoga had become so popular in the U.S. I mean, after all, it's an ancient uh, spiritual discipline which originated in India. And here it was, you know, yoga uh, schools all over the city in New York where I live, Many people who I would have never thought would take a yoga class in their lives becoming committed practitioners. So I really wanted to answer the question, how did this happen? And you do answer it. And uh, as you set up the story, you really get to, I think, the question many of us would, would ask, and that is, how did something as exotic, as, uh, as distant from American culture, as deeply embedded in Hinduism as it is, come to be accepted even in 19th century America? Yeah, I really, I really try to understand how that happened. And it didn't happen instantaneously, although um, as soon as Americans like uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau began reading books about Indian philosophy and about yoga, they really were quickly attracted to it. And um, as we know, those two were quite uh, open-minded in their thinking to begin with and eclectic in their sources. And so when Emerson started reading these books, including the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the first yoga scriptures, he, he found it enormously compelling. And he incorporated many of the ideas he found there in his own work and his poetry and essays. He wasn't very interested in practicing yoga, but Thoreau was. And he really began to practice it as far as he could understand it from these books. But, you know, starting from that moment, you, you can kind of see this dance that happened where people, um, some generations of Americans really want to take on yoga as a whole spiritual discipline, with, which includes physical practices, but it was really... Um, really aiming towards spiritual realization. And others in later generations find that those elements, elements make them uncomfortable and so kind of strip out the spiritual dimension and really focus on the physical parts of the practice. 
Now, one of the things you document in your book is that the acceptance and, uh, and interest that was directed towards yoga was tied to such movements as transcendentalism, as you identified it with Emerson and Thoreau, and later with New Thought. And, you know, in the history of, uh, of, of religious movements in America, you go to the 19th century, and a lot of these movements uh, associated with New Thought really caught on in some unexpected places. Uh, for instance, amongst uh, the very well-educated and the, the rising middle class. And, and, and as I look at your book, it seems that that's a part of the story, too. Very much so. I mean, New Thought, you know, which has permeated many, as you, as you say, many different um, r- religious movements in the U.S., um, got its start in the, at the tr- you know, really got some steam under it around the turn of the century. And it was kind of at the moment that yoga began uh, to be taught here in America by Indian swamis. So it was no longer just in the books. It was, you know, it, real teachers coming and teaching this practice to Americans. And one of the first moments that this happened was in 1894 at a summer spiritual retreat in Maine called Greenacre, and New Thought leaders were there too. And so from that moment on, really, yoga was kind of pretty closely linked to New Thought. And I do think you see ideas from yoga and Hinduism more broadly that are kind of imported into New Thought um, starting in the 19th century and the turn of the century. Then you have and other fig- addressed New Thought meetings from there yeah. on. You you have uh, figures like Vivekananda and and others who came and uh, so was it that Americans had to import the, uh, the, the so to speak the experts to teach yoga? Well, it really helps. I mean, yoga is a very um, first of all a her- very heterogeneous practice. I mean, there are very there are a number of different types of yoga. Hatha yoga is the one many Americans are familiar with, which really has um, the poses and puts more emphasis on physical practices. But there's karma yoga, bhakti yoga, the yoga of devotion. So, um, and then the texts which describe yoga are very coded and symbolic and meant to be transmitted from guru to disciple. And that was where a lot of the information and the instruction was given. So it really made a huge difference when Swami Vivekananda came in 1893 and began teaching a year later. And then many other Swamis followed, including uh, Paramahansa Yogananda in the early 20s and um, uh, Prabhavananda in the, uh, a little bit later. And, and these Swamis really had the experience of learning yoga from gurus in India and could transmit it more effectively. But, you know, very quickly there began to be American gurus, and Pierre Bernard was one such figure, and he began teaching uh, yoga really as early as the turn of the century. Now, you have yoga in America today, and if you follow that progression, and there's some very interesting figures and characters and movements that are involved in the story as you tell it, uh, we arrive at, at some contemporary questions that you really address in your, your historical record. So let me throw some of those questions out at you here. Uh, can you separate, the say, the physical aspect of yoga from its, uh, its, its spiritual foundation in Hinduism? Well, first of all, yoga is not just part of Hinduism. Yoga is part of Buddhism and Jainism, too. So it's, and Hinduism is a pretty, um, it's a term that was applied pretty late in the game to a really diverse in Indian religious practices. So, um, so the answer is, in some ways, yes, since yoga isn't really owned by a single uh, religion. Um, um, and in, as a practical matter, what people have done is sort of take pieces of it, um, the physical poses, the breathing exercises, meditation, and really practice them in the context of their own faith or kind of in a more secular way. I do think it begs the question of what you get when you do that, because yoga has very specific aims and there are slightly different theologies depending on which type of yoga you're practicing and what philosophical system it's associated with. 
Well, when you look at uh, at your record, it, it, it's clear that uh, Americans, uh, pretty much as we do with everything, uh, began to uh, to act more or less as consumers when it when it came to yoga, and uh, it, it's really clear that there were people who were interested more in this aspect and others in another. But uh, you you talk about the fact that that the the big story here clearly is that from a just a, a, a kind of interesting vantage point of looking at the American psyche, something happened that a, a practice so bizarre by, say, just, just normal 18th and 19th century American standards, so distant from the worldview of, of most Americans at that time, could become, well, to fast forward to the year 2010, something that's a $6 billion a year industry involving you know, literally millions of people. That still seems to be a strange story to me. Well, I think what this is at the kind of core of what makes yoga so um, powerful in America, in a sense, which is that it says you can use your body to transcend mundane existence. So even if you're just using um, practicing yoga as a form of exercise, in the back of your mind, you know that if you perhaps pursued it further, there's this whole other dimension, this rich field of possibility of transforming your body and having spiritual realizations by using your breath and your body right now here in this life. And I think that promise, whether or not many people ever take advantage of it or attempt to get to those deeper layers of yoga, uh, is what really makes it so appealing. In your book, you trace some of the uh, rather unknown aspects of yoga to people who are not involved in it and in the history of yoga and its reception in America. I was interested to read about the, uh, the, the sexual aspect of yoga that uh, certainly is, is very much a part of it uh, in its various schools, in its Indian roots. How does that get transformed into the United States? Well, um, as, as with everything, because it's not part of our culture, we, we tend to take a kind of superficial and, and sometimes um, trivializing and problematic view of it. But uh, in Tantra, first of all, yoga really posits, uh, particularly Hatha yoga and Tantric forms of yoga, that you can transmute sexual energy into spiritual realization. And that is by using your breath and your body to move what's called kundalini up the spine, up the chakra system, which many people may be familiar with. Um, and it really transforms your consciousness. That's not using sex specifically. That's using sexual energy. But there are forms of tantra that involve sex, and much of it involves visualizing sex. So sex as a sort of visual metaphor for the unification of divine principles. But there are some forms of Tantra that really um, do enjoin the aspirant to use ritualized sex for spiritual realization. Now, this comes in this very arduous uh, ritual apparatus that's quite tedious and involved. And most people, most Americans wouldn't have the patience to go even a, a tenth of the distance of what it requires in terms of preparation and you know, purifications and meditations and chanting and, and you know, years of, of uh, spiritual labor. But it does, it does uh, involve virtual intercourse. And, of course, that fact opened the way for less savory characters to exploit this dimension, as, as they did, and I, and I believe they, some still do, uh, to um, seduce young women, uh, somewhat gullible young women, who believe that they are doing something sacred and that will really give them deep realizations. So someone like Pierre Bernard at the turn of the century really used Tantra as a cover or a rationalization for something like sexual predation, although his, um, his, spiritual, his sexual partners were willing at the time, but he really did use Tantra to take advantage of women um, at a time when premarital sex really could ruin a woman's reputation for life. 
Let me ask you another question, which uh, which is is going to press upon you perhaps something that you didn't intend to address in your book, but uh, I just have to ask in the purposes of this interview and and for my own personal interest. When you have this background in yoga and uh, an almost unprecedented knowledge of, of how it came to the United States and was uh, was received here, when, when you hear someone talk about the possibility of something like a Christian yoga, does that make any sense to you? In some ways it does. In some ways it does. I mean, if you look at yoga as a technology that can be used to transform your consciousness, used to get closer to the divine, then it does make a lot of sense. If you're looking to have the specific realizations outlined in the yoga scriptures, um, I think it makes a little bit less sense because you have to then take on some more of the metaphysics and theology that those scriptures posit, and those are a bit different from what you'd find in Christianity or Judaism, for that matter, or Islam. So I think it makes sense up to a point, is what I would say to that. Yeah, I think it reflects something of the confusion on the part of many people as to what yoga is, or perhaps even what Christianity is, and I appreciate very much your response, because as I read your book, uh, I, I noted, uh, as a Christian theologian, uh, that, that the, the, the whole worldview here is so radically divergent. But I wouldn't have known that if you hadn't written the story and written it so well. And Stephanie Simon is the author of the book, The Subtle Body, The Story of Yoga in America. It's one of those books that, uh, that tells a story that you're not going to find anywhere else. And frankly, a story that isn't marginal at this point to American culture, when you're talking about millions and millions of Americans involved in it and a $6 billion a year annual industry, uh, this is probably a story that's right down in your neighborhood, right down your street. Stephanie Simon, thanks for joining me for Thinking in Public. You know, Stephanie Simon writes and speaks both as an outsider and an insider. I mean, she's looking at the history of yoga as an historian and uh, as a cultural analyst, and that's really important. But, you know, she's also a 15-year practitioner of yoga. That makes her candor on these issues, I think, all the more invaluable. You know, the history of the reception of yoga in America is fascinating. At the earliest period, it would have seemed impossible that Americans would be going for something so alien in worldview as a spiritual practice so deeply rooted in Hinduism. And yet, even by the middle point of the 19th century, yoga was catching on, a part of a phenomenon in this country, whereby we had people turning things like yoga in order to find an alternative to traditional Christianity. By the time you reach today, well, yoga is now very much a commercialized part of American culture, and Stephanie Simon helps us to see it wasn't an accident that we got here. Professor Douglas Grotheis joined the faculty of Denver Seminary in 1993, where he serves as professor of philosophy. He's a member of the Evangelical Theological Society, the Evangelical Philosophical Society, and the Society of Christian Philosophers. He received his Ph.D. and bachelor's degree from the University of Oregon, a Master of Arts degree from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. He is the author of many books, including Unmasking the New Age. Professor Grotheis, welcome. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, the issue of yoga is something that has been a matter of controversy within evangelical circles for at least the last 20 years, and amazingly enough, you have often been at the center of that. Well, a lot of Christians really want to know whether the practices of yoga can be incorporated into a faithful, biblical way of life, and sadly, many Christians are answering yes to that. We have some emerging church leaders such as Doug Paget and others saying that it's simply a 
physical discipline. You don't have to incorporate the elements of Hinduism. And in fact, it can actually bring you closer to God, the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I do not believe that is the case uh, for many reasons, but the word yoga itself means to be yoked or to be in union. And it comes out of this ancient non-Christian religion called Hinduism. And it's one of the essential planks of Hinduism. Hinduism is a very big tent, but all forms of Hinduism advocate as a necessary spiritual discipline some type of yoga. And yoga involves physical practices such as postures and breathing and chanting. But the essential point, the goal of yoga, is not the purification of the body or the beautification of the physique. The point of yoga is a change in consciousness, a transformation of the consciousness wherein one finds oneself at one with the ultimate reality, which in Hinduism is Brahman. So when people brought Hinduism to the West, as is detailed in this book by Stephanie Simon, The Subtle Body, and in other books, they didn't always emphasize the overtly religious aspects. In some cases they did, in some cases they did not. In fact, in the case of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who brought transcendental meditation to the West, uh, Maharishi sold this form of yoga, and he was a guru, as simply a way to be more peaceful, to become more intelligent, and so on. But he was basing his teachings on the ancient Hindu doctrines of the Vedas, the primary scriptures of Hinduism. You know, Professor, it was instructive to talk to Stephanie Simon, and even more interesting to read her book, because as a theologian reading that book, what struck me is that almost all of the early uh, appropriation of yoga in the United States was not about health. It, it was about spirituality, and that continued well into the 20th century. Right. Well, some of the proponents of yoga, such as Swami Vivekananda and others who came here the late 19th century, and Vivekananda was the star of the First World Parliament of Religions, were quite open about what yoga was. But it's interesting that now, when Christians attempt to appropriate yoga, they think that they can separate the theological and the spiritual from the physical. But in fact, if it is really yoga, that could not be done, because while there's a great emphasis on bodily postures, exotic forms of stretching, breathing, uh, the point is to recognize, as Simon says, the subtle body. And the subtle body is the spiritual essence of everything, which is really Brahman. Now, there are different schools of yoga, but I think the one that has had the biggest impact on the West is the Vedantic or the non-dualistic school, which says that ultimately everything is one, that's non-dual, and everything is divine. So instead of the biblical view that there is a creator-creature relationship, this is a monistic or non-dualistic view that says that all that exists is Brahman. And Brahman is not an I am, not a relational, moral agent. Brahman is beyond words and beyond thought. And it's interesting, in this book, The Subtle Body, the author quotes uh, one advocate of yoga who says that 
the goal, this is Vivekananda, said this, the highest meditation is to think of nothing. If you can remain one moment without thought, great power will come. This is on page 38 of her book in the chapter, The Guru Arrives. That's Vivekananda. Now, how different from biblical spirituality based on the character of God, a personal moral agent who has revealed himself in the universe, in the conscience, and supremely through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are told to meditate on the truths that God has revealed, and we're told to grow in our knowledge of God. Uh, We're told that Christ has made the Father known. John 1.18, Christ has exegeted the Father. He's made him known. So we worship, as Christians, a personal moral God who has offered justification, salvation, redemption by his grace, by through the incarnation, through the, the life, death, resurrection of yes. Jesus Christ. And the yoga people are looking for all of this within themselves, inherently, latently within themselves. You know, when, and, you, when you look at this picture... And uh, you look at the monism, the pantheism, the panentheism, you have to wonder why many evangelicals would not have an immediate recognition of, of, of what's at stake. But when you look to the larger picture, the appropriation of these exercises and, and, and all the rest, it, it appears to me, through the meditation and other aspects of yoga, that what we have here is the exact opposite of the Christian direction, that the Christian direction is is not into oneself in order to find answers, nor is it an effort to rid oneself of content. Our faith has an object, and and uh, the faith that saves is a faith that, that knows and yeah. trusts the Lord Jesus Christ and, and what God has done for us in Christ. That seems to me to be completely incompatible with the very idea of yoga. Well, it certainly is, because yoga tells you to go within to find the absolute. Now, Scripture teaches us that we're made in the image and likeness of God. However, we are fallen. And uh, Jesus says that out of the heart comes all these various evils. So we cannot find our true self and find salvation by looking within. Our true self is damaged through sin And the only cure, the only rescue, comes from outside of the self. And I love the way Francis Schaeffer used to put it. He said, we lift up the empty hands of faith. So we lift them up, up unto the Lord, and they're empty. Or as J.I. Packer put it, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our need for salvation. Right. Now, yoga says that through these postures, through the breathing, through the chanting, you can discern and unlock the universal, impersonal power, which is ultimately known in Hinduism as Brahman. That is the telos. That is the essential purpose of yoga. And Let me Americans ask want better bodies, and they want to feel peaceful, yeah. and that's why they're initially interested in yoga, but that is certainly not the purpose of it. Well, they're also divorcing yoga from its context, not only in history, but in contemporary practice that's related to uh, everything from uh, ridding the body of certain fluids to uh, ritualized sexual intercourse and all the rest that uh, obviously most Americans, middle-class Americans, don't associate with yoga, but is very much a part of of yoga in at least some of its schools. And that gets to the body. You know, Professor, let me ask you this question. When, when, when I look at the, the theory of yoga, to put it that way, it's kind of a westernized way to put it, I understand. But, but looking at the essence of yoga, 
it, it seems to treat the body as something that has to be overcome in order to right. achieve some kind of, uh, for want of a better word, salvation. And, and that's also just not Christianity. Well, exactly, because the Bible teaches the doctrine of creation. God created a good world and created human beings in His image and likeness. Now, we're fallen, but our redemption comes through the incarnation, the taking on of a true human nature of the second person of the Trinity, the Logos. And the final state will be the resurrection of the body, going back to Daniel 12, 2, the resurrection of the just and the unjust, those who have made been uh, declared forgiven and uh, had the just had the righteousness of Christ given to them through Christ and those that have not been forgiven so you have creation physical bodily the incarnation physical bodily and the final state is the resurrection of the just and the unjust and the just being made just through the work of Jesus Christ in terms of justification sanctification and glorification living in a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the great irony here is that yoga aims at the elimination of the body. It is a depersonalizing, de-individualizing, dehumanizing practice, because the ultimate reality in Hinduism is not a personal moral creator, but Brahman, an unknowable something that you dissolve into. Well, you know, when you look at this again, it's uh, it's a puzzlement, I think, to most of us that this would gain much traction among American evangelicals. Uh, we can see, I think, in the postmodern confusion of America around us how this might have a market and a constituency. But but you would think that American evangelicals would be able to spot something of, of this kind of worldview contradiction. Right. Let me ask you one final question here, because I, I think in terms of, uh, of, of where many Many Christians are trying to think this through. I know this is the question that many are right now just itching to ask. Can you separate, uh, can you make a division between, say, some of the physical exercises that lead to, you know, greater uh, health potentially for the body from, from the, the theological, spiritual, and, uh, and uh, well, intellectual commitments right. of yoga? Well, if something is truly yoga, it has that spiritual basis and that spiritual direction and that spiritual essence. Now, are there bodily postures that are similar or maybe even identical to some yoga postures that have some health benefit? Yes. But I always tell people when they ask me this question, any health benefit you could derive from yoga, you can get from outside of yoga, such as through Pilates or physical therapy or something like that. Yoga means being yoked with Raman, essentially, and you don't want to submit yourself to that alien spiritual practice. So if there are limited physical benefits, they can be attained outside of the practice of yoga itself. I think that's very well stated, and I think the other side to that is that if you have to get into some kind of meditative state in order to assume some kind of posture you are defining as exercise, you're kidding yourself if you think it's mere exercise. Exactly, and that is the point of yoga. It is the transformation of consciousness from the finite to the infinite. And only God is the infinite personal creator. We are the finite personal creatures, and yoga wants to blend those two into this one faceless, non-personal thing, and yoga is the means to achieve that. It has been a pleasure to talk to Professor Douglas Grotheis, who is a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary. Professor Grotheis, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. 
You know, Professor Grotheis might be a philosopher, but he's a philosopher who knows theology. And I appreciate the fact that when he's dealing with the issue of yoga, he doesn't just go to the worldview, as important as that is, he goes to the gospel. And what we had in that conversation was an analysis of yoga that was unapologetically rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the big issues there were not that yoga was uh, at odds at point A or B with Christianity and with the gospel, but rather that the logic of yoga is the very rejection and the very reversal of the logic of the gospel. You know, it's good to hear from a philosopher who's thinking these things through, and one who also situates the yoga movement within the New Age movement, even as in the 19th century, the yoga movement was a part of the New Thought movement. You know, the alliances and ties there are not accidental. Writing in the New York Times, Machiko Kukatani says that the story of yoga in America is the story of assimilation, diversification, and more recently, commodification. Well, that itself is something of an understatement. The story of yoga is a twisted tale of how something that is so essentially rooted in Hinduism could become a part of American popular culture and increasingly a part of the lives of many who would identify themselves as Christians. It's a large number of persons. Yoga Journal suggests that at least 16 million Americans are practicing yoga. That was back in 2008. The yoga industry, by the way, is estimated to be a $6 billion a year industry in the United States. We're talking about something here that isn't peripheral anymore. We're talking about something that is now, well, you know, Stephanie Simon, in opening her book, The Subtle Body, goes to the White House, where in the Obama administration, a health emphasis has included White House lessons in yoga, by the way, for school children. Yoga is becoming a part of physical education in some school districts. Yoga is becoming a part of what is taught in exercise classes at the local mall. Yoga is indeed becoming a part of even what is discussed and practiced among some Christians and in some churches. Am I concerned about that? You bet. That's why I felt this conversation was important. I think the history is important. I think Stephanie Simon has done an invaluable job. And what makes her book, The Subtle Body, so interesting and helpful is that it's written not by someone who's an outside critic of yoga, but by a 15-year practitioner of yoga. Ms. Simon's work is really valuable. And as a matter of fact, it's a fascinating story. As someone who has followed so many new religious movements in America, especially in the 19th century, looking to the burned-over district of New York, looking to the birth of so many alternative religious movements in America, this fits the story. And just remember that every single one of those, every single one of those movements was, in the main, a self-conscious attempt to provide an alternative to traditional Christianity within America's religious culture. The odd thing is not that there would be a public or a market for such movements, the weirder and more concerning thing is that there will be many Christians who will be attracted to it. You know, the big question is the one that we get to when we finally ask, can yoga be separated from its roots in Hinduism? And the answer to that is a steadfast, non-negotiable, clear as can be, no. Now, that's affirmed, of course, by the Hindu practitioners of yoga in its various schools who insist that there is no way to divorce yoga from Hinduism. But it should also be clear to any Christian with any theological and spiritual discernment. Because as our discussion made very clear, the entire logic of yoga is a logic that is foreign, if not diametrically opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was in the early church an ancient heresy known as Gnosticism. And that ancient heresy suggested 
that the body, as representative of the material world, represents evil, represents something that has to be overcome, that salvation is achieved by going into a consciousness that is beyond the body, that denies the body, that indeed escapes the body. Well, thus you see it's not only parallel, it's very, very similar to what you find in Hinduism and particularly in yoga, escaping the body, escaping the material world into the spiritual world, making that break, making that escape, making that leap. That is not what you find in the Scriptures at all. The Scripture is very clear that God created this world and His glory is found in it. Even though it's a fallen world, human beings are still made in the image of God. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that our goal and aim that God's command is that we escape the body into some kind of spiritual existence. We understand that there is no such notion at all. And more importantly, Hinduism and yoga point inward, suggesting that salvation is found by going in. Well, the Christian gospel is exactly the opposite. Salvation is found by reaching out, going out, trusting in one who is outside ourselves, and and a righteousness that is not ours, but is, as Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, an alien righteousness. We cannot go in to find salvation. Salvation is that which comes to us as God saves sinners through his own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to the cross and the empty tomb. We do not look within. But you know, there's something else here that seems absolutely central to this discussion. So much of Eastern mysticism, so much of yoga, if not the entirety of the entire yoga movement— of the philosophy that is summarized by yoga and similar practices, is about emptying the mind. But if Christianity is about anything, it is not about emptying the mind. Just look at the Bible and see how much is about God speaking and his people hearing, about cognitive transfer of God's revelation to his creatures. Look how many times we are told to hear and to see and to learn. We are to study. We are to hide the Word of God in our hearts. We are to find the will of God, not by looking within and meditating, but by reading the Scriptures and being instructed by the one true and living God who speaks to us through His Word. We are to go and we are to trust. We are to know. These things are written that you may know. Saving faith has an object. Saving faith has essential content knowing about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says that salvation comes to the one who professes with the lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believes in the heart that God has raised him from the dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul says that the gospel comes down to what was delivered unto him, and he now delivers unto us, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that God raised him from the dead according to the Scriptures. Saving faith is never depicted in Scripture as an emptying of all intellectual content. Rather, it is a trust in the one we come to know as Lord and Savior. You know, when we look at yoga, we can see that certainly there are physical practices. There are exercises. And frankly, some of them look absolutely daunting. But the amazing thing is that the exercises are relatively meaningless, according to those who are trained in yoga, unless it comes with the meditative practices. That leads me to another point I want to make very clear. Yoga is not the only movement or the only school of thought that comes with this kind of spiritual danger for Christians. There are Christian traditions of mysticism that come with parallel dangers. 
There are Christian traditions of mysticism going all the way back to the Middle Ages that suggest that what we need to do is to empty the mind. What we need to do is to try to reach a state of, of absolutely empty consciousness. That's just not taught in Scripture. We are to meditate in Scripture, absolutely. But we are to meditate upon the Word of God. We are to have essential biblical content on our minds as we meditate. The Word of God Well, as we read it, the Holy Spirit is applying it to our hearts and lives in such a way that when we meditate upon the Word of God, we are being drawn, and we are being trained, and we are being prepared, and we are being armed for the discipleship to which we are called. Now, the American cult of health is also a part of this picture that just has to be admitted. We are determined to extend our lives and to enhance our lives, and we have become at this strange point in American history absolutely preoccupied with our bodies. And if you are looking for a school of thought that gives you full license to be absolutely preoccupied with your body, well, well, this is it. But if you're going to follow a classical yoga tradition when it comes to paying heed to the body, you better be facing the reality of what that means. Because in classical yoga, this can include everything from ritualized sexual intercourse to what are defined as elaborated enemas and any number of other practices that, uh, that after all, I think most middle-class Americans would find rather bizarre, if not spiritually troubling. But the reality is that a lot of the attention to the body right now is not so much about respect for the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not so much respect for the human being as being made in the image of God— It is a form of undisguised narcissism. It is a concentration upon the self that is not spiritually healthy. And yoga, for many people, I think, becomes the entry drug, recognized or not, into more troubling forms of spirituality and spiritual confusion. You know, the marketing of yoga goes on. You you do not, by accident, have a $6 billion industry. Many Christians are drawn into this because by friends or neighbors or perhaps even in their experience before they become believers, they have become practitioners of yoga. They like the way they feel. They, they like the, the limberness in their, in their body. They, they, they like the state of consciousness. Well, folks, as is always the case, we are to judge these things by the Scripture. And the Scripture does tell us that indeed the body is not something to be despised. The body is something to be respected because it was made by our Creator for His glory. But at the same time, we know that our body is showing all the signs of Genesis 3 and that no amount of exercise, no amount of cosmetic surgery, no amount of Botox or other forms of enhancements is going to stave off the reality of aging and the reality of death. The big question, of course, as we well know, is what comes after death? What in the world does yoga promise after death? One of the issues of dramatic contradistinction between yoga and the Christian gospel has to do with the the fact that the gospel is not just about this life. It is about the life that is to come. And that life, too, is not a life that is devoid of consciousness. It isn't a state of reaching absolute non-consciousness. It is a state of absolute consciousness in the glory of God. And you couldn't find a more radically distinct and divergent notion than that. Why are so many Christians attracted to yoga? Well, that's a question that will have to be answered individually. But as a movement, I think we can see the phenomenon within the trend of theological confusion, the trend of, uh, of a spiritual smattering that is going on in so many churches and in the lives of so many Christians. There is also a, 
an undeniable fetishism going on about yoga. And when we look at it, we recognize perhaps the most important message we can bring, the most important analysis we can offer, has nothing to do with medicine and actually very little to do just with the history of yoga, but with the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fact that once we come to know Christ, it isn't that we would wish to escape by any means into any state of lesser consciousness. Rather, as the Apostle Paul says, the goal of our lives should be to know him and the power of his resurrection. Thanks for listening to Thinking in Public. We'd love to hear from you as you have the opportunity to write me at mail at albertmuller.com. You'll find a host of resources free for you at albertmuller.com, along with my daily podcast, The Briefing, available Monday through Friday in the morning, a briefing of contemporary events and issues from a Christian worldview perspective. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For more information about Boyce College, go to boyce.com. That's B-O-Y-C-E dot com. I hope you join me next time for Thinking in Public.